Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. So we're here as usual to answer people's questions about meditation practice and Buddhism. If you have any questions, you're welcome to start right away posting them in the chat. Uh, we'll start answering questions as usual at quarter after the hour. So to start, we'll take a 15-minute break to prepare ourselves mentally and sort of settle into the program, settle into the present moment. So take this time to do walking meditation, sitting meditation. And uh, as also, of course, gives time for people to ask questions. So we have questions ready. And uh, are able to start ask, answering right away. So I'll be back at... 15 minutes after the hour to begin.
All right, we're back. So we'll start with answering questions. If you have questions, you can continue to post them in the chat. We're going to prioritize, as usual, questions about meditation, questions that are important from a practical perspective, in the sense that it seems like the person needs an answer for the benefit of their personal practice. We're kind of deprioritizing curiosity questions, intellectual questions, and all that. But if we have time, we might get around to it. So I'm ready to begin. Ubuntu, we do have questions. When noting rising and falling for a few minutes, is it okay to just watch the rising and falling without noting it? So, I mean, the simple answer is no. That's not how we practice. But, I mean, is it okay? I don't want to sound like it's not okay. I want to be clear that it's okay for you to do lots of different things. It's just not what we teach. It's not recommended. It's not as effective. One problem with it is it has the potential for um, uh, reinforcing bad habits. So if I ask a question, why do you want to stop noting? You probably have a reason. Uh, it might be more comfortable. It might be uncomfortable for you to note. And so by um, by indulging that bias, whether it's a positive or a negative bias, you're going to reinforce it. And so that would be immediately my concern with that sort of practice, but just simply it's not what we do. So I recommend to note and try and examine why it is that you would rather not, because there's probably some challenging mind state that you're, uh, you're not dealing with in a mindful way, and that's giving rise to liking or disliking, wanting or aversion, that sort of thing. Struggling with discipline, it's been two months without meditation, and motivation has faded away. I just can't avoid distractions like media, movies, and I keep doing the same mistakes. Can you give advice? So, one of the most important aspects of religious life is association with like-minded individuals, or not even like-minded, but preferably people who are uh, can help guide you, maybe uh, who have practiced more than you have as a means of supporting you in your practice. So uh, we try to put together these sorts of uh, things like this Saturday broadcast for that reason. We have an online community in Discord, and one thing we're doing uh, starting next month is uh, every Sunday, every the first Sunday of every month, we'll be having a mentorship meeting. So we're starting a mentorship program, and it's for the purpose of facilitating this sort of thing, um, cultivating meditation groups locally for those people who are interested in spreading or sharing or organizing 
community in their area by whether it's helping people connect with meditation or whether it's um, providing space or time or organization for them to practice on a regular basis and i think that sort of thing probably will go a long way to addressing these sorts of problems because it's night and day practicing on your own and practicing in a community when you're surrounded by like-minded individuals and you're given the reminder you're supporting each other giving tips and, and advice and encouragement and so i guess the general answer is i would encourage to find ways to commune to to get involved um and and most most importantly do meditation courses like if you have the opportunity find a way to do uh, our at-home course if you've done that find a way to do an intensive course in meditation you can come to our center here in canada or some other center somewhere there's really um i mean there's no other way than just practice but trying to practice on your own at home falls into this problem it's hard to motivate yourself it's kind of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps this expression which i don't quite know what it means but it's an impossible thing to do you can't actually lift yourself up by pulling on the backs of your boots yeah. so the support from others is crucial crucial in in the buddha's teaching the buddha even said so himself that's what i would recommend find ways to get involved join our discord community or something like it i mean just a suggestion that that might be one avenue and uh, maybe join the mentorship program to see if you can find uh, interesting ideas on how to set up uh, something in your area to uh, find other like-minded individuals and help others uh, practice with you even if it's just having a weekly meditation group in your area, that sort of thing. When meditating before sleeping, should I lie on my back or front? So the Buddha lay on his side. If you really want to be very technical and, and are concerned about falling asleep, if you want to have the most efficient and, and uh, effective session then you lie with literally on your side like uh, on the, like on a knife edge on your side with one uh, foot on top of the other legs straight and your head sort of propped up on your arm in some way or another you can even have have it propped up on your elbow uh, or you can just put your hand underneath your head there's different ways other than that there is i mean there technically is no right or wrong way the physical deportment of the body is not uh, hugely important in your practice of meditation however the body is deported that's how you note it so you're just not lying lying i find myself avoiding worldly things and spending much time in solitude it feels tiresome and difficult to be around people now. How does one deal with this tactfully? It comes with time. I think you get better at it as because it's an adjustment, right? If this isn't how you lived before, then 
it, it, it's something unfamiliar and so it's a challenge to learn how to live in a new way but that's all it is it just takes time and and experience um you know try try to be kind without engaging one thing that i found really helps is smiling and walking away i mean it's just an example but i find it pretty generally effective if you want to not engage with people uh, when they try to talk to you or something, just smile and walk away. I, I, I think that's perhaps a bit naive in the world. You can't do that all the time. But things like that, where you are kind but unengaging. I mean, that smile and walk away works really well in a meditation center. You can get away with it. But in the world, people might get very angry at you still if you do that. But that's what the kindness is for. Find some way to be friendly without engaging. I think it's a general, generally good attitude if you're, if you're in this frame of mind where you see the benefit of seclusion and you are keen to be on your own. Just be kind but unengaging. After practicing vipassana for three years now, I become more angry and upset. Anger can arise and stay for a long time. What can I do except noting it? I don't know if you're practicing our tradition. I assume probably you are. Um, all right, so what can I do except noting it? So you are practicing this tradition. One thing about mindfulness is it often gets in the way of your enjoyment, your indulgence in pleasurable activities, so it can be somewhat unpleasant in that sense, just as withdrawal from any kind of addiction can be unpleasant. It's sort of a withdrawal symptoms. People who are on withdrawal are often not so pleasant to be around, and they're, it's not so pleasant for them going through withdrawal. That being said, the only alternative is the addiction, which is always unhealthy in physically and mentally. So the first thing that I would want to address is your confidence in mindfulness. I mean, there's no question that mindfulness is the most healthy and wholesome thing anyone can do. I mean, it's it, it can't be over. It's impossible to overstate the value of mindfulness. It's just so supremely powerful and good. So, um, however, it's quite common for people's resolve to practice mindfulness, at least in the beginning, to be shaky because it's new and it's unfamiliar and it's, well, it's just someone, you've just got my words for it. No matter how much I praise it, that's just somebody else's words. So look and see if there's any kind of doubt and, and uncertainty, maybe wavering like, hey, wasn't this supposed to make me a happier person? Why am I so angry? And talking about things like addiction and withdrawal can help you to appreciate um, the, the intricacies and the complexities of mindfulness, that it's not as simple as practice mindfulness, be happy. It's not, it's not just a two-step thing, practice mindfulness, be happy. You have to practice mindfulness, then you see clearly. When you see clearly, then you, you let go. When you let go, then you're happy. And it's like a four-step process. Uh, and and it, it's it's time consuming. It takes practice before you can see clearly. Even when you see clearly, it takes repetition of seeing clearly before your mind actually lets go. Uh, well, when you let go, then yeah, then you'll feel happy. 
So that would be the second piece of advice is look and see how you're clinging. Anger is a sort of a clinging, upset is a sort of a clinging, but there's other sorts of clinging that you might not be noticing. Maybe you have a desire for happiness. And again, maybe there's some doubt about the practice, and doubt is a real problem. It's a problematic mind state just in general because it makes you ineffective. You can't do something if you're not sure about it. Uh, I guess another thing I would say just as an addition is that nothing can arise and stay for a long time. So try and be a little more precise in seeing that anger certainly doesn't stay for a long time. It arises and ceases, and there's probably some physical results of pain and tension in the body and that sort of thing. And so the anger will arise and cease, come and go. But uh, so will many other things, and you should try to be noting it. The, uh, one more thing. The last thing is um, simply practicing at home, again, like the other person, simply practicing at home is often uh, challenging. I mean, I wouldn't say ineffective because it is incredibly valuable. It's just often discouraging because the results are so minuscule and, and much more long-term results than short-term gain. If you want to really go far and really clean things out, intensive practice is really night and day in comparison to at-home practice. So I really, really would encourage people who are interested to find a way to do an intensive course. It is just so much more valuable. There's just so much more that can go on. It's not even just comparing small amounts and large amounts because the intensity of it, or, or the intensivity, because it's not, it shouldn't be intense in the sense of being overwhelmingly uh, strong or something. It's just intensive in that it's constant. And because it's constant, it, there's a much more ability, a much greater ability to um, to explode, to, to, to bring light, to bring enlightenment, to let go because of the um, sort of the feedback loop of mindfulness that allows for a charge. It's, um, it's like electricity. The reason why alternating current, it, everything we use is alternating current, is because direct current, simply constantly applying electricity, would lead to people that were killed because of the buildup. Uh, so the buildup of mindfulness is, is the opposite. It's a good thing, but it's a buildup nonetheless. If you do intensive mindfulness, like if you're practicing daily, night and day, throughout the day, from morning to night, and, and sometimes into the night, for days and days on end. It's not just because you're doing more, it's the doing more constantly. The Buddha said, satacca kiriya vasena, means uh, practicing always and continue, practicing continuously, unbro unbroken. It just has uh, such greater strength and power to light up your mind. Can I do walking meditation in a small room where I can only do about three or four steps before turning? Yeah, absolutely. It's not ideal, but it's not, it's not in any meaningful way inferior. Uh, it's, it, it's just sometimes, especially in the beginning, a challenge mentally and psychologically to do it. If you're fine doing it, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong. You have to think of it, we're not walking. We're just observing the movements of the feet. So you can stand still and lift your feet up and put your feet down, technically. 
that's not how we practice, but certainly three or four steps is fine because it's not about going somewhere, it's just about watching the movements of the feet. How do you stay focused in meditation when you see your family suffer terribly financially and not being able to help? Well, you, you don't try to stay focused in meditation per se. Um, I mean, kind of you do, but the, the point is to stay focused on the lack of focus, for example. If you're unfocused, Try and note that. I guess it's still not stay focused. Stay focused implies more than one moment. Try and focus. Rather than thinking of it as staying focused, think of it as focusing anytime you're able. So at any moment when you're alert and aware enough to apply the meditation practice, do so in that moment. Don't worry about staying focused. Just be mindful in individual moments. Uh, that being said, it's certainly an important part of Buddhist practice to tend to your livelihood. And livelihood doesn't just mean your job and how to make money, it means your 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 life. And if you have a family and you're living with your family, then certainly that's a part of your Buddhist practice is to care for them and to support them and find ways to um, contribute financially. Now, I don't know your situation. Maybe you literally mean you're trying but are unable to. But uh, I think meditation and mind mindfulness can actually, in many ways, help. It helps you um, clear your mind. It helps you see more clearly about ways to do things. But certainly, it, it often is a bit of a mistake to abandon worldly affairs completely. Now what you have to do is give up your desire for them, your attachment to them. The Buddha said, abhijja vinayesi, uh, what is it? Vinaya loke abhijja domanasang. Vinaya means uh, having given up in regards to the world uh, any kind of desire or aversion. It doesn't mean giving up your worldly activities. Even monks have worldly activities. We have to go for alms. It's a very simple worldly activity, but it still is a sort of a livelihood, going out and receiving food from people who are who are giving donations is a livelihood act. Now, if you're not a monk, then most likely you have more complicated acts that you have to perform, and, and you absolutely should. You just What you have to give up is your attachment to them so you can stay mindful of them. So again, I don't know your particular situation, but just in general, um, try to apply mindfulness in the moment and mindfulness to those sorts of activities that you're talking about. I've had a hard time in my late teens and early 20s with false starts and setbacks. Others around me are progressing, and I feel stationary with limited options. As a Buddhist, should I just accept this? You have to be a little more um, specific, I think. It's hard for me to understand whether you're referring to what sort of starts and setbacks you're talking about. So if you're talking about worldly starts and setbacks, and people progressing... Uh, in a worldly sense, like they're they're getting job progressions. I mean, that's what it sounds like you're talking about, but I'm not sure. 
because it's quite a different answer if you're talking about spiritual starts and setbacks and spiritual progress and feeling stationary spiritually. Um, so I guess I'll just answer the, the question. As a Buddhist, should you accept things? Accepting isn't quite the Buddhist uh, approach. The Buddhist approach is ob observation and kind of a clinical observation for the purpose and this is our intent, for the purpose of understanding, of seeing clearly. Understanding is probably easier to appreciate. We're trying to understand things. Though, no, it's important to mention seeing clearly, because we're trying to understand things through seeing clearly. Um, so that's the model that we apply. Acceptance isn't quite the mind state, state that we want to uh, apply. We want understanding. Understanding will provide you uh, the direction. When you understand something, you you explicitly or, or directly know how to deal with it. You know the right way and the wrong way because you understand it. You understand how certain approaches to life lead to stress and suffering and lead to failure. And you understand how certain approaches lead to success. So that really applies both in a worldly sense and spiritually try to understand, create, un cultivate understanding through seeing clearly, through mindfulness, through observation of your experience. With analytical meditation, can one achieve any result? I don't know what analytical meditation refers to. I think I can't answer this question. What is your advice? I, I don't know much about I, I don't want to answer that, I don't think. Okay. What is your advice to a person for whom part of his self-identity is a belief above the mind in the Creator and seriously loves and practices the words of the Buddha? Hmm. Well, um, unfortunately, in Buddhism, self-identity is considered wrong view, so it's going to be a um, antithetical to your Buddhist, this person's Buddhist practice. So I would ask this person to consider whether they actually do love and practice the words of the Buddha if they have self-identity. Uh, belief above the mind. I don't even know what that means. A belief above the mind in the creator. Belief. A belief in the creator? Is that just some weird way of saying a belief in the creator? A belief in God, right? That's the idea. And that's how I read it originally. Um, a belief in, so a belief in a creator God is also wrong view. And so that's the challenge. I mean, more practically, it's not a pro not, tech, not not basically a problem. Like certainly you can practice meditation, you can get good results and there's no issue, but I guess I would just leave the door open to help that person to to acknowledge, help that person acknowledge that they are not actually following the words of the Buddha if they have both self-identity and belief in a creator god because 
both of those things are considered wrong view in Buddhism. So, so not to let that discourage them from meditating, because meditation probably is helping them, and hopefully they are practicing meditation and, and certainly could still help them, but they won't get very far. They won't be able to... They'll have to. They'll have to eventually come to a crossroads where they choose either or to to accept reality and let go of belief and and conception of self and that sort of thing, conception of God. Um, or they give up. Or they limit themselves. They close that door to being able to well understand reality because reality doesn't admit of such things. I mean, honestly, it's not that huge of a problem because those things are conceptual. You'll never see, you'll never see God or not God through meditation practice. What you'll see is that ultimate reality that is a thing that is on a level which admits no creator God, admits no self. And so you slowly, slowly start to realize that any such thing as self or God can only ever exist on a conceptual level by its very nature. Just like a chair can only exist on a conceptual level by its very nature. And so you, you realize that any belief that those things might exist in ultimate reality is, is false. So it's not even that big of a deal because a creator God is just a narrative, just like um, my parents are a narrative. I have a narrative that my parents gave, my mother gave birth to me. But that's just a narrative. Those, those things do not exist in ultimate reality. In ultimate reality, there's only moments of experience. And so it's a whole different realm. And as a, that's sort of the reason why it's not so bad for anyone of any religion to practice meditation, provided their minds are in a wholesome way. It's just a distraction and a delusion and a... a a muddling of the waters because the clinging to concepts prevents is a hindrance to cultivating the perceptive the perspective uh, of experiential awareness you can't focus on moments of experience when your mind is co constantly cultivating this concept uh, view like like ideas of god and self so it it's in con it's in conflict with the perspective of experiential awareness. Is being enlightened akin to being a breeze in the wind, so to speak? I'm concerned that the end goal would remove my sense of character and ultimately feel that I've lost the self I am. So this kind of existential crisis, or I mean fear anyway, is um, I mean it's common, and it actually is simply one more example of our fear of losing something that we hold dear. The truth of the matter that you're talking about is simply a clinging to something. It, it isn't special or specific to self. Uh, or sense of character, it's plain and simple, any like any other sort of clinging. We cling to things that we like, and our self is a thing that we like very much. And so the idea of losing this conceptual thing is very scary. But it's no different from clinging to a possession. If you have a fragile 
um, porcelain doll or something or a, a, a porcelain vase or crystal uh, I don't know knickknacks that are very heirlooms or that sort of thing or or family heirlooms family treasures or possessions and then your house burns down or or something gets broken or smashed the fear of that happening is acute the fear of losing a child a parent the fear of your parents dying your children dying your relatives dying your husband and wife your friends dying fear of lo of loss um that's all that's going on here so when someone talks about enlightenment you it can be very very scary the buddha acknowledged this you fear of you fear losing this thing uh, but there's nothing special about it becoming enlightened is just seeing that it's seeing that our clinging is in fact causing us stress and suffering and that's the key is that clinging to anything whether it be yourself or it be a, a porcelain doll or, or or something or anything is uh, is cause for stress and suffering it just creates this sort of fear so I'm concerned, what's happening is you have fear, you have worry, you have fear, and these are stressful. What enlightenment does, or what mindfulness does, is it shows you that. It shows you the stress. There's no other ulterior or ex exterior um, motive or goal. The goal is just to see what is causing you stress and suffering. The Buddha kept saying that. That was what he always focused on, the Four Noble Truths. Suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. There's nothing else. So enlightened means having seen that, and as a result of having seen that, no longer clinging. Uh, it's not really about views and ideas of self or no self or that sort of thing. It's much more practical. Are all Dhammas Maya? If so, why? If not, why? No. Maya is one specific Dhamma. Maya, the idea that realities are Maya is a very Hindu concept. It has no place in Buddhism. Maya, in fact, in Buddhism is only referred to as someone's being deceptive if someone is deceptive you call them you say they have the quality of maya so it's a it's a um it's a mental defilement it's a corrupted state of mind when someone is deceptive that's maya that's how we use it in buddhism so it's a very specific dhamma the idea of um illusion as a religious teaching um or as some quality of of dhammas no there is no quality of dhammas that dhammas could be maya in the sense that dhammas are a non-self, right? Or, yeah, all dhammas are non-self or all sankharas are impermanent and suffering. I don't have to tell you if not why, I don't think. The answer is no, they, they are not. You'd have, you see, because... If you want to say that they are, you have to provide some some reason, and there is no particular reason. I guess I could comment on um, how we would view as Buddhists the Hindu concept of Maya. 
Uh, the problem with the Hindu concept of Maya, I mean, right off the bat, is that it depends on a god, generally, because it's God who is providing the illusion. Because otherwise there is no um, reason to believe, unless you have some idea. It's just like any other theistic, magical explanation of the world, that somehow, for some reason, God is creating this illusion. Krishna, this is Krishna Lila or something. His, his, Krishna is playing games. And that's all this is. It's just Maya. And when you see through that, that's enlightenment. Because without God, it just, I think, falls apart. I don't think there's any reason to believe, like in the Matrix. People talk about the Matrix as being a Buddhist movie, and it's much more a Hindu movie. It's Hinduism to believe that there's something behind um, this fake reality that we're living in. Buddhists wholeheartedly um, embrace the veracity of what we're experiencing. Because it doesn't matter whether we're sit we're sitting in vats of liquid somewhere, we're still experiencing, and the vats and this body are neither one more real. So the illusion is is concepts. The, this body is certainly an illusion, but the experiences we have are real. And the idea that there might be something behind behind this it makes no difference. So. If it were in fact the case that the Hindus were right, and it wouldn't be contrary to Buddhist belief, I'm going on a limb probably, but it wouldn't be that much of a stretch for a Buddhist to accept. But more importantly, it, it wouldn't change Buddhist practice at all, because again, it doesn't matter whether we are hooked up to virtual reality machines like in that movie, The Matrix, and this is all just an illusion because it isn't all an illusion. No matter what, ultimately, all there is is experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. And whether this body is a real body or just a, a illusion created by a virtual reality machine or by Krishna is irrelevant, because Krishna himself doesn't exist, even if there is such a being that calls themselves Krishna. There is still only experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. There's nothing more, nothing less. Can a lay person progress on the path without sense restraint? Without sense restraint? Um, it's so integral to it. I mean, sense restraint is really just one way of talking about the, pra the path of practice, potentially. There are ways of mental restraint that aren't progress on the path. So uh, let's be clear that there are different types of sense restraint you can restrained through through simple behavior like averting your eyes or looking down at the ground in front of you when you walk that's sense restraint you can hold your hands together to prevent you from touching things uh, you can close your eyes as a means of sense restraint you can plug your ears you can go into a sensory deprivation tank that sort of thing you can restrain with effort you can restrain with mindfulness you can restrain with knowledge uh, wisdom wisdom is the greatest sense restraint because it's effortless it's you're just naturally restrained um but restraint through mindfulness is really what we practice so mindfulness is a form of sense restraint it's not preventing you from seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or feeling or thinking but it's filtering it so that seeing is just seeing with no desire or aversion towards it no reaction to it and in that sense there's restraint and without that, well, because that's the path, you can't really progress. So if someone has 
no type of sense restraint, then well, that includes mindfulness, and so no, they cannot progress. How do I stop getting caught up in happy feelings on one hand and suffering on the other? Well, our emphasis isn't on stopping getting caught up per se. Uh, you don't start there, and that, that should never really be your focus. You see, because you can even be mindful of getting caught up after the fact. You're mindful when you realize you've gotten caught up. So you like the happy feelings, you would just know liking, liking. You're not trying to get rid of it, because that's not conducive to, to wisdom and understanding. Trying to get rid of it is just conducive to greater aversion and desire. So the approach has to be different. Of course, that does help you to stop getting caught up in them, but it has to be a multiple-step process. The first step, and always what you should focus on, is on mindfulness, on being mindful of the happy feelings, being mindful of the, the reactions to the happy feelings, and the same with suffering. So I don't know if you read our booklet, but you might be interested in reading it or paying attention to it, really trying to understand, at least from a practical perspective, that it's actual practice that you can apply. You can try doing our at-home course. There's a link. There should be a link on the website that's linked below. You can even come and do an intensive course if you want to really get into it. Is it possible for Westerners to become a monk? Do we need to save up enough money for a lifetime before we can ordain? No, monks don't need money. You just have to be free from debt. Um, so, yeah, it's perfectly possible. But that's just in a theoretical sense. Practically, becoming a monk is not easy for anyone a challenge and it sometimes there's many things that magically sort of block your path because you don't have the requisite good karma uh, and i say that kind of sort of boldly i mean brashly right because it sounds like i'm kind of even touting my own good luck at becoming a monk and i don't hold that luck as very high but i think it does exist and sorry not luck the good karma there is something that I've seen throughout all my many years as a monk and all the people I've seen try to ordain and do ordain and stay ordained, is that it's a fairly low-level worldly sort of thing. But mark, mark this, there is something to the challenge of becoming a monk. And many people are just, I find so many obstacles in their way, kind of magically, sometimes, sometimes. Just like out of nowhere, so many things get in their way. And other people, when they ordain, they just are unable emotionally, mentally, physically. It just doesn't stick with them. And other people just take to it like a fish in water. They take to the, and, and often are not very good at it, but something keeps them in the robes very easily. So again, it's not a huge, it's not like I'm boasting or it's not like I'm feeling proud of myself for being one of those people or anything. But um, it's worth noting that becoming a monk is, is not easy. And why I say it's worth noting is because whether you are a monk or aren't a monk, it's worth noting that there's no, there's no uh, guarantee that you're going to have a chance to be a monk in the future. 
and so there there are activities that can support that of course associating with monks um one very i mean these are very worldly things but one thing that i've always been into is offering robes to monks whenever i get a robe i try to find a way to offer it to some other monk as a means of reinforcing it because i see how great it is to be ordained and not just for myself but for promoting the ordination of monks because again it's hard and it's getting more and more rare i think for people to have the opportunity to ordain How do you be mindful of your thought? When I note thinking, the thoughts I had have already gone, and I'm simply trying to be mindful of noting thinking. Yeah, I mean, don't think too much about it. Don't put too much, don't read too much into it. Um, after the thought is gone, you just say thinking, and it's as a means of closure. Mindfulness is just a means of reassuring yourself that it is what it is. It's um, an intercepting the train of thought so that you don't follow the thought when you say thinking you've just stopped it you've closed the case what was that it was thinking oh okay and move on so you just say once thinking and that's enough if you're thinking a lot you can also note that distracted distracted in the stories jatakas People became sotapanas or even arahants just by listening to one of the Buddha's sermons. Why can I not grasp the teachings even when I try all day to internalize them? Well, you you aren't on their level, unfortunately. Sounds like you might have a lot more work to do. Those people did a lot of work. Many of them featured in the Jatakas, right? I mean, they they spent lifetime after lifetime preparing. Now, most of those people are gone because they've already become enlightened in the time of the Buddha or, or since. And what we're left with now is people, we don't have so many people who have that profound uh, greatness and, and preparation that they've cultivated lifetime after lifetime. Probably what we'll see is new people taking on that cultivation, like the beginning of the Jatakas, details this it, it answers this sort of question that sumeda there was this ascetic named sumeda who had done an incredible amount of preparation already and uh, but never as a buddhist never as uh, never sorry never on the path to become a buddha but then he met a buddha and that started him on the path to becoming a buddha himself and of course that also started other people on the path to becoming disciples of of the buddha the present buddha so there were people, even at that the time of, of Dipankara Buddha, who was a Buddha in ancient, 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 like so many countless time years ago, who, uh, who was the impetus for our Buddha. So this Buddha is most likely the impetus for a lot of other people to become enlightened in the next Buddha's uh, sasana and in, in future times as well. So for many people, it's just going to be lifetime after lifetime of preparation. Buddhism is not a guarantee that if you practice, you're just going to become enlightened or even in this lifetime. That being said, the average person, and this is sort of an average, if, if they undertake to practice intensive meditation, and sometimes it's just that, you just take the initiative to sacrifice some of your livelihood to take a break and go and do an intensive course in meditation 
can uh, change that. You know, mindfulness. The Buddha said, even if you practice for seven days, if you're if you're intently practicing, it can change your life. What importance do jhanas have? They seem conceptual and not practical. Are there specific practices like mantras, or do they arise spontaneously? If so, any advice how to practice them? They are not conceptual. Um, they are practical. What importance do they have? Well, they provide a solid foundation for the cultivation of vipassana. You can't see clearly unless your mind is um, calm. So you either have to cultivate um, tranquility first, or else you cultivate tranquility and insight together. Now, in our tradition, we cultivate them together, which means we're focused on ultimate reality, but we're using a mantra similar to what you would use in samatha practice, but we're using it focused on these ultimate reality experiences. So as a result, both tranquility and, and vipassana are seeing clearly arise together. It's less pleasant, and it's even less powerful because those trance states of, of tranquility meditation have a great and lasting power in the mind. So if you want to go that route, you have to first spend the time to cultivate the jhanas, the samatha jhanas, and then you use that as a basis to practice vipassana. Do they arise spontaneously? No, they take effort. I mean, they can if you've cultivated it in past lives. That's usually the way it goes. If you haven't, then you generally have to put some effort in. Uh, how to practice them? If you're talking about the Samatha Jhanas, which I assume you probably are, then the Visuddhimagga is your best source. The Visuddhimagga is just an, an incredible manual, the path of purification. So you can download it free on the internet, which is really incredible. Like that book is on the internet, is such a valuable resource. It's huge and it has everything in it. And you can look up all sorts of different ways to practice to cultivate the jhanas. Thank you, Bhante. That was all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay, thank you. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for helping out today. Have a good week, everyone. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.